invest in and follow principles. That has proved to be pretty successful. This landlord's gonna make almost two million bucks over the next 12 years for doing something one time. Mm -hmm. And that's like residual. This guy's got another seven retail spaces and he's got 10 stories of apartments above it. And I'm like, man, I'm on the wrong side of the coin, right? I need to own real estate, not brokerage. You start doing deals that are absolutely life-changing, like that puts you on the path for intergenerational wealth. Welcome to the Real Estate Home Runs Podcast. I am your host, Louis Van der Horst. This is a podcast for busy professionals who want to learn about passive income producing strategies that have helped others crush it in the real estate world. Whether you are a new or seasoned real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. All right, welcome back to the show. Today we have a special guest. Seth, thank you for joining us. That's my pleasure, Louis. Good to be here. It's great to have you. I'm looking forward to what you have to share. So Seth, tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do, your background before we get into today's topic. Yeah, so I live in California, grew up in California, and I'm a former recovering electrical engineer. I was doing the whole rat race treadmill for several years and uh, just wasn't satisfying. Frankly, it was pretty depressing because you're just going in trading time for money. And just by chance, I, I got introduced to the, the Robert Kiyosaki books a couple years into, uh, actually it was uh, within the first year of graduating from college. And that really just set the, the path for getting involved in real estate investing. A lot of people get into the Kiyosaki books thinking that they want the, the passive income and the cash flow. And his books are really good at teaching new investors about that. But what really inspired me was when he started talking about the, the kind of the macro economics and uh, literally the, the one question that led me into real estate investing was when the person who recommended the book asked me, do you know that the federal reserve is not federal or reserve bank? And it was a bit of a paradigm shift. So when I realized that the, the money that I'm earning from my job is is being deflated or inflated rather over time. It's, you know, I can buy less and less goods as the, the Fed just keeps printing money. It's like, I got to have a backup plan. I got to make money, my money work for me instead of being a slave to my, my paycheck. So uh, I saw real estate investing as a solution for that. And the neat thing is with that, then you can make your, your money go work for you. You can have that go create more money and actually solve bigger problems that I'm a lot more passionate about than just going in and clocking in for a job. What are those ways that you have been able to make your money work for you? Well, if I can take a step back and get a little bit of context with it, because it's so cliche to hear people from California saying, we're going to go make the world a better place. I mean, you hear like every entrepreneur says that, and that it's important to have that drive, that mission. But I remember watching a debate at Freedom Fest. It's this annual conference put on by Dr. Mark Skousen. And he had the founder of Whole Foods, uh, John Mackey. And he had Kevin O'Leary, who was one of the sharks from Shark Tank, and they would debate. So they're both capitalists. They're widely successful. They created, you know, companies that create a lot of jobs. You know, I, I'm big fans of both of them, but they have two very different paradigms as far as what a business is supposed to do. Kevin O'Leary is kind of like the Wall Street type. You know, he's, he's Mr. Wonderful. He's, you know, the, I don't want to say like the type A on Shark Tank, but he's kind of like, he's not the nice guy, right? Even though he's called Mr. Wonderful, he's very stern. And he's like, I want my money, if I, if I put it on an investment, I want it to go out and come back with friends. And I don't care what good we're doing in, in the world. I'm paraphrasing. But his, his main thing is that it's got to make a profit first and then solve whatever problems afterwards. Not a right or wrong, but John Mackey, his perspective is that if you're investing, if you have a business, it needs to actually solve a, a fundamental problem for the market first. And then you get rewarded by solving that problem. So 
just the paradigm shift and thinking, okay, well, I can actually get rewarded for solving problems. So I can go mm -hmm. buy, you know, a house in Beverly Hills and it's already fixed up and I can get a tenant, but it's going to make a little bit of cash flow, right? And it's because it's not really solving a problem. I mean, there's not a shortage of housing in Beverly Hills, or maybe there's for mansions, but you compare that to a couple states away where today there's a shortage of 7 million affordable rental houses. If you go provide those affordable houses, you can get cash flow. You can go provide housing for low-income families. So it's not like a win-lose. Like you can you can make money while doing good in the communities you invest in. Um, and that was an evolution. That I didn't start off with the, that righteous cause from the get-go, but I kind of learned it that the market will reward the investor based on the the magnitude, the size of the problems that we solve. And the government too, if you're providing housing, you're contributing for renewable energy, I'm seeing, they will incentivize you to continue to do that and promote that. Right. Yeah. So it's nice to have the government on your side when, <laughs> when you're investing. <laughs> I mean, that, and yeah. I think that's not, not to throw shade on Airbnb. I mean, I, I like saying at Airbnb rentals, but the city that I live in, you know, we knew a couple of friends that were doing Airbnb in Aliso Viejo, California. And it was legal for a time, but the government didn't like having these short-term housing, you know, and they, they're like, it's, this is supposed to be a community for families. So they just mm -hmm. banned it. It would be pretty hard pressed to see if like you're in a neighborhood with a lot of voters that are, you know, low income where the government would all of a sudden say, Hey, we're not going to allow section eight housing over here, or we're not going to allow C-class multifamily. Or so opportunity just, zones. <laughs> or opportunity zones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that can definitely change the game and prevent those investors from wanting to invest in those areas and bring the value up right. for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, there's good incentive with that. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan, just not to get too political of having the government get involved and dictate you know, how the market should be. But mm -hmm. you know, if there's a need and they're trying to incentivize people to go through, like you mentioned, opportunity zones, I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a great way to you know, you're solving what that local community needs and uh -huh. you, you have government actually offering these amazing tax incentives too. So I'm like, when I compare it to like, you just buy a stock uh -huh. in, in some fortune 500 company that's never made a profit, or you can actually go buy something real and it's tangible and it's fundamental to human survival. I, I feel like it's just overwhelmingly more favorable for the latter than, than the former. Yeah. And for how long you have been in this uh, journey of real estate? Yeah, about um, going on over a decade now. So the first uh, rental property was in December 2010. And okay. I was I was a part time, uh, actually, I was a full time engineer at the time and a part time investor. And then over time, I, I reduced my hours from my job and spent more time on my business to mm -hmm. the point where I went full time real estate investor in 2014. So going about seven years now, I've been doing it full time and you know, just seeing the company grow since then. What was that? Will you mind walking us through that journey of going from working full-time at your job and then part-time as an investor to then full-time investor? What was what systems that you set up in place or strategies that helped you? Um, everything went perfect. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> yeah, it was, it was out of necessity. I thought earlier on that I could afford to buy one house per year and, you know, in like 40, 50 years, I'd have enough properties to be able to retire and expect it to happen as soon as it did. But um, I didn't go full time because, you know, there were just millions of dollars sitting in the bank account. It was, it was out of necessity. So mm -hmm. there was one situation where there was a, um, an out of state property I was repositioning, which means you're, you're taking a distressed asset 
and improving it, right? So was it a large apartment complex, high crime, drugs, prostitution, gangs? We couldn't keep a property manager in there longer than like six, seven months. And wow. um, I, was, I remember I was working on my job and I get an email from my property manager, the onsite manager and says, hey, Sep, you know, please give me a call when you get a chance. And um, this, this, it wasn't a company where they were okay with you having a side business. So I kind of, I, I told my manager, but it's not something I really told the other employees about. They knew I invested, but mm-hmm. I, I didn't really share like the details of what we were dealing with. So I basically found out that we had an emergency at the property and the SWAT team was on the property. The property was on the news. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately there was a homicide that same day and they couldn't find the killer. So here I am. And it's like, I remember it was like 10 AM. Um, the property was in Texas and mm-hmm. I go to one of the vacant offices. I had a little cubicle. So I go to the office to take a phone call. And one of my employees, one of my uh, coworkers rats me out. I'm like, Oh man, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't be able to like, you know, answer the, the questions of the property manager and make sure we can find a, a security guard and solve this problem. If I have, you know, some nosy coworker just trying to trying to interfere. And I could see, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't doing my job. I wasn't, by any means, like an all-star employee. Like I, I was paid there to be working on my job, not to be going solving problems out of state. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's is the challenge of doing it. When you're doing it on the side, you're limited to the amount of time that you have and the team that you have. So if you have a good team, you can do what, you, what else you want with your time. You don't have to focus as much as micromanaging it. So now, thankfully, mm-hmm. fast forward, having those systems, I don't have to be, you know, answering every single phone call to like if there's an emergency that happens i don't have to go to the market to actually see it through you know you have a team and they can actually take it from start to finish Um, and we could talk more about the details as far as like how that team and you know evolves if yeah that helps okay yeah and you're i'm currently reading the four hour work week and great book on on there he talks about mobility and, and being able to maximize your funds and it goes back to what you were saying yeah if you don't have controlling what you can, who you do it with and when, then you're limited. So having a team is essential in, in that way. Yeah. So what, what are some practical ways or what does it look like from the time that the lead comes in to when you take it to closing? Yeah. So to help answer that question, I'll ask the audience to visualize like a factory production line. So one of my first jobs, actually it was a second job out of college is I worked at a bathtub factory. Um, so I, I got hired on as a, as an engineer to work on their robotics line. They had, they had multiple factories around the U S and they had one that was robotic and, um, it needed maintenance and needed updating and all that stuff. And the whole idea with the robotics factory line is it would save money on labor. There was consistent quality and it was just better for the customer too. Um, so going and actually seeing the factory up close and spending time with the factory workers, the, the, the plant managers and everyone on the production line. And, and actually one of the plant managers said, you know, Seth, you can't make suggestions for improving this process from California. You actually have to put on the suit and get on the acrylic factory line. So I remember there was, there was one, one week where I was there and I'm spraying bathtubs and it's like 110 degrees inside this, this acrylic booth. You have this PPP uh, protection, not for COVID, but for all the, the styrene fumes. And it was totally different. So like the theory that I had to actually being in the booth and, and working with the people on the production line, it's similar to you know how we're, we're doing it today where it's not me like giving orders, but it's taking feedback from the team to create a process. 
And um, with that, that factory, you asked as far as like, how does the process go from like, you know, lead to closing to think of it like the, the bathtub factory at the, the input, the very first material that comes into this bathtub factory is acrylic. It's, it's raw plastic. So it's just this white, you know, liquid plastic. And then you see it go through this, you know, it goes it attached onto a mold. It goes through this process. It's heated, it's applied. And then out comes a bathtub and it's consistent every time. Like they can, they put out like 300 bathtubs a day. And, you know, it's, they don't have to like keep reinventing the wheel. And what was stressful early on in investing is I had to keep reinventing the wheel after every closing. We go through the closing, then you have to hire a contractor. You, you, you come up with the renovation budget. Uh, this is all pre-closing. You get the management company. And then it's just, it felt like every deal was like its own recipe. And what's helped is just creating a standardized process so that even though we, I mean, we're in multiple markets, I think we're in five, six states now, work with three or four management companies, but every team that we work with, they treat the properties the exact same. So we have a standard guide for like, this is the type of colors we're going to use on the exterior. These are the types of wood flooring you're going to use, the types of granite, the backsplash, the LVP. So no matter what the stress the house is, is entered into this factory, this virtual factory, output comes out the same. And we do that because we know if, if we do a certain amount of standards, then the house will be in high demand by renters. It's going to make the appraiser happy. The lender is going to want to refinance it afterwards. The property manager is going to want to manage it because they know it'll pass a section in inspection. So just taking the same the same mentality of like, you know, how can we automate this instead of having to, you know, waste as much time every time? Like what's the quickest way to, to make this repeatable and scalable? I think the, the four hour work week was a big help with making that the e-myth. There's a couple of good documentaries on Henry Ford and how he created the, the whole automation process too. So I think those would be good resources for any of your investors or the audiences that are looking to just find ways to make it a little more automated. Awesome. And do you have everyone be part of like a CRM or the CRM that your company has sends out the messages to the contractors, anyone outside? What does yeah. that look like behind the scene? So we, we do have a CRM, but it's currently not to, so it depends on the market. Like there's some okay. markets where I don't have any contact with the contractors where we, we have a working a couple of working documents. So one on the standard renovation manual is like, this is basically our Bible for what we want this, this house or this duplex, or whatever it is to look like. Mm -hmm. And they get that. And if they have questions, then we have a, we have a couple of intro calls. But the goal is to make it so that it, they know exactly what our expectations are. So when whatever the house that comes through, even if it's a different contractor, the property management company and the construction manager can go train that that contractor and and prevent any types of misunderstanding. Like you know, if because if we're telling them exactly what type of materials we want, what what the house is supposed to look like, then there's less. Uh, likelihood of having quality errors and, you know, defects and all that. So I think ultimately when we get to more uh, scale, yeah, if we can incorporate that into a, a CRM or even have like an in-house construction manager, that, that would be the goal. But right now it's, it's on a localized level. So we, we give the management companies the tools to be able to standardize it for our properties. Got it. And then they become the point person at whatever location it is. Correct. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And the, the feedback we get from, I mean, even down to the leasing agents, to the, to the contractors, to the handyman is they, like a lot of them I have never even met, but when, when they do like one or two, it, you know, the first couple of uh, repositioning projects, then they understand what our expectations are because they've gone full cycle. Mm -hmm. So that makes it so that 
and this is going to sound kind of crazy because, you know, and I wouldn't recommend anyone do this on their first couple of deals, but if you have an automated process, then you can literally buy property sight unseen. The key, and it is critical, is you have to have the right team. And the second part of it, you have to have those standard procedures. And, and that just makes it so that we can focus more as far as on finding the right deals and, you know, working with the investors and not necessarily have to micromanage, you know, why do we put yellow paint on this wall instead of green paint? Actually, we don't, we don't do yellow or green on the interiors, but you know, just those types of like little yeah. things that, that come up, you know, we focus on, on the more important issues. Got it. Yeah. That's great. Saves you time, saves you money and everybody knows what, what to expect, what the end result is. Have you feel like you had a setback? ever in your career as an investor? And, and what was that transition like? How did you get past that? Yeah. So the, the biggest setback has been with working with the management companies. And to date, we've, we've gone through about 16 property management companies, district managers and property managers. Mm-hmm. And there's been two situations where I've been fired by a property manager and one situation where it's gone to litigation. So the biggest setback is the biggest lesson over time is when I've mm-hmm. earlier days, when I've put more focus on the property than on the team. So the, like the real estate guys, they have a quote where it's the investor identity first, then the marketplace, then the team, and then the deal. But most new investors, they get it backwards. They start off with the deal and then they try to do it backwards. They focus on the deal and try to build everything else, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. around it basically. So, and, and I think that's, that becomes a recipe for disaster because if you lead with the deal, then, you know, it's easier to try to put the wrong team on the bus, if you will, like to borrow from Jim Collins, instead of having the right team on the bus, like if you've got the right team on the bus, then they can tell you exactly, well, these are the types of properties we manage. These are what we're, we're good at. So just having that alignment, making sure that if, if you're working with a team that is specialized in low-income housing, then you feed them low-income housing. You don't feed them houses in Beverly Hills. If you're working on Airbnb high-end rentals, then you, you focus on finding a, a world-class team in that market that does high-end Airbnb rentals, not necessarily like a jack-of-all-trades uh, type of team, right? Because mm-hmm. if, if they're trying, if they lack the experience, then they're going to get the experience on your own dime. So one of the things that I'm happy to share this to, to be able to help with that, that the big setback is a list of property management questions that we put together. Mm-hmm. So every market that we're into, and I think one of the skills that we've developed over, over time going with, through this many property management companies is be able to find the best management companies uh, within a market. And, and that opens up a whole lot of opportunities, opens up opportunities for deal flows, to find good local attorneys, to find contractors, handyman, you know, world-class leasing agents. You don't have properties waiting for a long time, but it's like employees. Like you can't make a bad employee into a good employee. Like you can interview up front, and the goal is to be able to funnel out so that you can find the cream of the crop or find the, the A players within that market. So that, that questionnaire, it, it takes quite a bit of time. And I, frankly, I think the fastest I've heard any property management company say that it's taken them to fill it out is four hours. So we've had some management companies when they first look at it, they say, look, Sep, th- this is gonna take me hours to fill out. Um, we don't want any problem properties. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, why are you even in this business? Because as a property manager, your job is to solve problems, right? Um, yeah, I mean, we don't want repeat problems every single day, but I mean, if you replace the water heater, it's not going to break next week and, and again and again, right? So that's just kind of to be able to help out and find those management companies that are more, uh, I guess, aligned with like a long-term uh, interest for the investor instead of trying to look for investors that would help them make a quick buck. That's good. 
I like the order that you uh, share about figuring out your investor identity first, then identifying your partners, eight players, and then focusing on finding the deals instead of doing it the other way around. Right. That's uh, powerful. Yes. Where do you see yourself going five or 10 years from now? So the, the end goal is to, there's a specific number, there's to get to 15,000 houses that are affordable and available to low-income tenants to be able to teach other investors how to get into affordable housing and you know be able to improve the communities that we left them, to be able to make them into a better condition after mm-hmm. we get involved than before. Because I, I feel like a lot of people get into the real estate investing business with just going after the money and they inadvertently become slumlords. So, and slumlords aren't good for the community. They, they, they don't screen in the tenants. They don't take care of good tenants. So I think less of that and, and more educated investors with, with systems and with the right mission, I think can really help make a difference in, in the areas that need it. That's good. Do you have any books perhaps that come to mind that helped you or, or that you would recommend to other people who really want to dive deep into systems and processes? Yeah, uh, the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. Uh, he's a medical doctor, a, a, an ER surgeon. That, that's a fantastic book. Uh, we mentioned, uh, we discussed the E-Myth, the four-hour work week, and uh, Failing Forward by John Maxwell is a really good one because that's that was the book that kind of helped me understand that it, you know if you burn your hand on the stove, that it's okay as long as you get the lesson out of it, right? You don't want to melt your hand off the stove, not to get too gory. But, um, you know, you get the experience and if you can create a system or process, uh, you know, get something out of it to prevent that, then that can become valuable to the market. What happens with a lot of investors, they, they burn their hand in the stove and they say, I'm never going to invest in that property again. I'm never going to invest in that asset class again. They're going to invest in real estate again, instead of, uh, you know, peeling back the onion and saying, well, what, what was the mistake? Like, what could we have done differently if we would have gone back and changed things? So um, I think combination of those books, also having, you know, masterminds, uh, I've been involved in multiple coaching programs. I'm currently involved with, with the real estate guys is in a circle and Kyle Wilson's in a circle. So, you know, just to be able to have uh, conversations like this with other investors to get different ideas, it really helps. I think that's more important than just accumulating the doors in itself because it's, it's easy to get tunnel vision and having, you know, ideas and systems from other investors that you can scale, I think really helps us get unstuck. That's good. What are three things that have helped you hit real estate home runs? Three things. So is being very clear on the investor identity and and that's evolved over time, but instead of making it about, you know, I want to go accumulate this many multifamily doors, for example, changing it to, this is the problem I'm going to solve, like on affordable housing. I think that's been a big one. Two is realizing that you know, the difference between active and passive investing. Like earlier on, I want to be a passive investor. I thought the real estate was just easy and you just get the rents automatically. So I, I evolved into an active investor and, and I stay active because I enjoy it. But I think a lot of investors should make that decision earlier on and really understand, I mean, do they want to, if they have, you know, wife and kids, do they want to spend, you know, and I'm not exaggerating, 40 hours, 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week, repositioning properties, dealing with property management companies, finding deals, and, and the headaches with it. I mean, if you enjoy that and, and you're weird like us, awesome. If not, they're, they're maybe, you know, going into syndications or, you know, lending or something like bridge lending, maybe that might, might be a better fit. So I think understanding the difference between those two is what, what helped and, you know, basically helped me not give up, realize that, okay, this is actually what I'm, what I'm passionate about. And the third one is, is also just as far as 
just uh, you know constantly researching the markets that you invest in right like i think for for making home run deals it's hard to do that in markets like a flint michigan so it's it's really important to pay attention to the macroeconomics ken McRoy always talks about you got to pay attention to the jobs and the population growth and flint has been a market that's been struggling for years and there's there's plenty of markets you can find cheap housing but are are the economic drivers there so, you know, reading about emerging markets, there's several books about that. And I think just being in tune as far as where the trend's going. I, I watched a documentary about uh, Warren Buffett, and it said that he spends most of his days reading. So he's reading the news, he's reading financial reports, uh, tr- trying to see where's the trends, what is the market trying to tell him where the opportunities are that he can uncover. So I, I think as investors, you don't necessarily have to buy like a, a deal for pennies on the dollar, if you buy it in the right location, if you buy in the right path of progress, and if you're able to do good value add to it, I think that that's probably more important than, again, the deal itself. I want to ask you which authors you feel like are the most influential to you. Uh, definitely Kiyosaki. He was the author that got me into just reading and being interested in learning and economics. And G. Edward Griffin's, his book, The Creature from Jekyll Island is a fantastic read. Creature for Jekyll Island is a history on the Federal Reserve. And the third is Equity Happens by the Real Estate Guys, because they take those economic doom and gloom concepts and, and they put optimism in it. They, they make it so, okay, we're aware of the reality and there's, there's challenging economic times with, you know, close to $30 trillion national debt, you know, rising um, deficits, you know, the, the trade deficits and all that stuff. And it's like, well, how, you know, how can we position ourselves to be able to benefit from what the government's doing instead of being victim to it? So I, I think those books, and there's, there's countless, uh, countless others, the, the website, I do have a list of my favorite books on there. I, I try to read about 20 or 30 books per year. So always, uh, always looking for ways to improve and, and to learn more. Awesome. How can people stay in contact with you if they want to find out what SEP is up to and anything you're working on? Yeah, well, the website is uh, becominvest.com, uh, just my last name, invest.com. My email, you could reach me at uh, info at becominvest.com. And also pretty active on LinkedIn and Facebook. You just Google me. So yeah, if anyone, you know, if any of your listeners are looking for that the property management questionnaire or if there's any, uh, any specific questions about that, happy to help out. Hey, thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure, Lewis. Great chatting with you. Same. We hope you enjoyed this interview and got some value out of it to help you in your real estate investing journey. If you can take just a minute, please do us a favor and leave a review. Hit the like button on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to our podcast on and subscribe so you can hear future episodes. Also, don't forget to check out our Real Estate Home Runs Podcast Community Facebook group, where you are able to connect with some great listeners. If you're an investor who is crushing it and want to share some information centered around passive income in real estate, please contact us. Hit those home runs, and we will see you next time.